We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, so grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. We'll be reading uh, verses 31 through 44. And please stand as we do each and every week to give reverence to God's Word. And this is God's Word for His people. Verse 31. And He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at His teaching, for His words possessed authority. In the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 35, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of them, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Verse 38, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who were sick and with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hand on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them. It would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Verse 42, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to him, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The word of the Lord. Josh, come on up here. Let me pray for you and we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for this day as we opened up this gathering. This is the day that the Lord has made. Lord, we rejoice and are glad in it. We rejoice and are glad in it because of what we just read, that you stepped out of heaven to come and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, that you are the son of God, the one who saves sinners like us. Lord, you save us, then you call us sons and daughters of the king, and such we are. Thank you for your great love. I pray for my brother Josh as he opens up the word today for us. Lord, may he uh, decrease and you increase. Let us listen and be taught through the unction and the power of the Holy Spirit, informed by your word and encouraged in community. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. As Aaron said, I've had the, the privilege of knowing the pastors of the crossing for a number of years we've loved this church from afar for many years and it's a a privilege to be here now with you and open the word i've been in sports ministry since 2008 and i i believe sports provide a, a massive opportunity to understand life right whether you're an athlete coach or fan there can be so much learned from sport and i imagine that fairly often, doesn't he? Last week, after winning the Super Bowl, the Kansas City Chiefs hoisted the Lombardi Trophy over their heads, right? You saw the award ceremony. Many of them were kissing the trophy as if it were an idol, but they were celebrating. 
This trophy, this Super Bowl victory named after the Hall of Fame football coach Vince Lombardi, who won five Super Bowls as he coached for the Green Bay Packers. Now, many of us know of Vince Lombardi. Many of us know that he's one of the greatest NFL coaches of all time, but his legacy and his expertise did not always precede him. In 1961, he gathered the Green Bay Packers to middle of the field the very first day of practice. These were professional football players. And he grabbed a football, and he held it over his head, and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he went on to explain how much the football weighed and how many inches long it was. And then he sketched out the dimensions of the football field for them and told them how many yards long it was and how many yards wide it was. These were not seven-year-olds at the first practice of the Pop Warner League. These were professional football players who'd been playing the sport their whole lives. So I want you to imagine sitting in that huddle that morning, probably thinking to yourself, really, a football That's what we're doing here this morning. I thought I was drafted by the Green Bay Packers of the National Football League, and this guy is holding up a football telling me what it is. Is this guy for real? wonder if any of you ever have that same question about Jesus. I wonder if there are ever times you read your Bible. You come to a particular story in the Gospels or, or you read a section of what Paul says about Jesus and you think to yourself, is there any way this guy's for real? In light of what he says about himself, in response to, to what he asks his followers to do after reading what he says will happen in the future, do you ever sit there wondering if there's any way that this Jesus really is who he says he is? I know I do. There are times I read of His mercy and grace and I think there's, there's no way. Right? Other times I read of how simple the offer is to come and follow Him and I think it's too good to be true. And then I read of the cost of discipleship and I think, who is this guy? And I believe Luke knew his audience might be asking that very same question. Right? Luke's been giving the account of Jesus and over the last couple of weeks, He's turned from the eyewitness accounts of the birth narrative that you all looked at over the Advent Christmas season, and he's now zooming in on Jesus' earthly ministry. And I think we can see this transition in chapter 3 when John the Baptist comes on the scene as a cosmic shift in history. Pastor Aaron has drawn out over the last few weeks this idea that, that, that Luke is setting up the account of Jesus particularly in the introduction of his earthly ministry as a, as a coronation of a new king. I think he used the words inauguration of a new king, right? Inauguration of a new president was the example he used. As Aaron pointed out, there's, there's much symbolism that communicates the, the gravitas of the presidential inauguration. If we look back to the last couple sections of Luke, we see similar symbolism in the inauguration or the coronation of King Jesus from John going out before him as the herald introducing him, announcing his arrival to his baptism where the Father puts his seal of approval upon him, to the genealogy that connects this king to all people, to his first act as king, waging war on his cosmic enemy, the devil in the wilderness, we see Luke put on display 
the inauguration of a new king who will be ushering in a new upside-down kingdom. And then last week, you all looked at the first proclamation of this newly inaugurated king, right? Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. It's this amazing messianic prophecy that said the Messiah would come to proclaim liberty to the captive, recover sight to the blind. He would set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And, and then what did He do next? He said to them, today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Essentially, He says, I'm that one. I'm the one that is going to do that. I am the one that has come to reverse the curse of sin in this world. And Luke recognizes at this very point that his audience would be asking, is this guy for real? There's a sense, friends, last week you saw Jesus, this is a football moment. Luke's audience is reading this thinking, is there any way this can be real? And in Luke's brilliance, rather than tell Jesus' story chronologically, he intentionally places certain events in his gospel out of order to both build tension as he did last week and then to relieve the tension and to answer the questions as we see he'll do this week. And so we're left at the end of Luke chapter 4, verse 30, where you ended last week saying to ourselves, is there any way this Jesus really is who he says he is? And it's in this passage you just heard read this morning. Luke 4, 31 through 44 that Luke shows us that through what Jesus did in Capernaum, His authority authenticates He is who He says He is. And He will do exactly what He promises to do. I want you to hear that again. That's the, that's the one thing Luke wants us to take from this passage. Jesus' authority authenticates that He is the King that He says He is. And as that King, He will do exactly what He promises to do in the universe. Just as Vince Lombardi had to go out and prove he knew what he was talking about to authenticate his this is the football moment, so Luke highlights the authority in which Jesus acted to authenticate who He was. So we're going to walk through our text this morning. We're going to to see Jesus' authority authenticate who He is in three ways. First, through His message. Second, through His method. And then third and finally, through His mission. The authority of Jesus' message Method and mission will authenticate who He is and draw us into deeper adoration of our Savior. Before we jump in, would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Dr. Luke who has gone to painstaking details to to show us who this Jesus is. To not only show us who He is, but to show us what He's like. That He has all authority. To, to enact the very things he read of Isaiah 61 last week. And I pray, God, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would see the authority of Jesus. And it would give us confidence in the one we worship. It would cause us to, to faithfully obey and bend our knee to this King. And Lord, we would submit to His authority with joy and with adoration because this King is good, as we sang of earlier. We love You. We ask that You would open our eyes and ears to the Gospel this morning. Have Your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we first see Jesus' authority in His message. Look with me at 4.31 and 32. 
And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus starts his ministry in Capernaum like he does so often in the synagogue. In fact, this day starts similar to the one in Nazareth that you all looked at last week, doesn't it? He's teaching on the Sabbath. And we can imagine he's probably teaching something like what he taught last week. He's picked up an Old Testament scroll. And he's declaring the promises of the Messiah coming to undo the effects of sin in the world, just as he done in the synagogue in Nazareth. But what is the people's response this week? It says in verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the parallel verse in Mark's gospel, he adds, unlike the scribes. His word possessed authority unlike the scribes. And so the first thing we need to see about the authority of Jesus' message is there was a tangible, a, a noticeable difference in the way he taught. The authority that he used when he spoke was different from the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. In first century Israel, rabbis would be meticulous in quoting other rabbis and the traditions they brought in their teaching. In fact, a sign of good teaching from a rabbi would be that he would hardly say anything original at all, but rather he'd quote a long line of rabbinical thought. Much of the teaching of that day was rabbis quoting and pointing to the lineage of the rabbis they had learned under. But that's not what they saw or heard in Jesus that morning. He spoke as one who had authority himself. He didn't speak from authority, nor did he speak to gain authority. That morning, Jesus spoke as the authority. You have heard it said, Jesus would often say, but I say to you, this is one who spoke with authority. But where did this authority come from? How could he speak in such a way that those hearing the message stood amazed, recognizing something different about this rabbi? Surely part of it was the content of the message that he was declaring. But remember, in a sense, he wasn't saying anything new. Isaiah 61 and all of the other Old Testament prophecies that he might have quoted would have been preached and taught on in the synagogues regularly. And so where did his authority come from? Jesus' authority was derived from his identity. So far in Luke, you've seen all the ways Jesus has identified with those he came to save. Through his baptism and through his genealogy, we see Jesus fully man, identify with the humanity that he came to save. But you've also seen the divinity of Jesus, haven't you? In the birth accounts, we see one born of a virgin. We see the one who's declared to be the Son of God. And we even see His divinity on display at His baptism also, where the Father exclaims, You are My beloved Son, and with You I am well pleased. Fully man, and yet fully God. Jesus is fully man, likened with humanity, and yet He is also fully God. And it's His identity as God, as the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that is the basis for His authority. The Apostle John opens his Gospel not with birth accounts like Luke, but by drawing our attention above where Jesus' authority is derived from. John 1.1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Where is Jesus' authority derived from? 
It's derived from His identity as God. The Word, Jesus Christ, was God. And that's not past tense in the sense that He no longer is. That's past tense in that John was showing us that eternally from before time began, Jesus had existed as God and still does today. And then notice what else John says about Jesus. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. So again, we ask, where does Jesus get this authority? Why does He have all authority in heaven and on earth, as He says in Matthew 28? Because the Bible says, as God, He made it. I don't know if any of you enjoy board games. Our family loves playing board games. But there's one game I don't allow to be played in my house. It's Monopoly. That game has got to be responsible for more fistfights, for more divorces, for more children running away than any other game in the history of the world. Every time I play it, I think to myself, who came up with this game? And why in the world did they make it this way? But you know what? It doesn't matter what I think. Who am I to say how Monopoly should be played? See, there is one who has every right to say how it should be played, though, isn't there? There's one who has the right to say, you have heard it said that house rules are okay, but I say to you, play the game as it was meant to be played. That one is the creator of Monopoly, Milton Bradley. The creator of that game, no matter how bad we think the game is, holds all authority when it comes to how the game should be played. And the same is true of King Jesus. Jesus' authority is directly derived from the fact that He is God. And as God, He is the author and creator of the universe. And this gives Him all authority. And those sitting in the Capernaum synagogue recognized that the message they were hearing that morning was different than anything they had ever heard. And notice throughout our passage, the very words that Jesus speaks to different people carry the same authority. Even in His method, which we're going to look at in depth in a moment, we see the very words of Jesus carry authority. Look at verse 35. It says He rebuked the unclean spirit. He spoke a word and something happened. In verse 39, He encounters a high fever and what does He do? He speaks to it. Jesus' authority is manifest. That is, it's put on display through His Word. As God... Jesus speaking is His doing. When Jesus speaks, things happen. And this is how God has worked throughout all time. In creating everything from nothing, the power and authority of His Word brought about the cosmos. Let there be light. And what happened? The only thing that could possibly happen at that summons. Nothing else but light shining forth was possible because God's speaking is His doing. And friends, it's no different today. The way of God has not changed. His speaking is His doing. His Word carries the same authority today as it did then. Jesus' Word carries authority. The Bibles that you're holding in your laps carry the same authority that Jesus spoke that day in Capernaum. Marvel at this with me for a moment. 
God's speaking is still His doing. He speaks and things happen. The Word of Jesus, the Bible, through the power of the Spirit, it still saves. It still calls. It still convicts. And it still works in the lives of those who hear it. Jesus has spoken. And it's recorded for us in the Word. And it carries the very same authority as we see that morning in Capernaum. As the inaugurated King who is preaching the good news of the Kingdom of God, the authority of Jesus is seen in His message. But as we've seen, His speaking is His doing. And so that means it's not just His message that has authority, it's His method too. Look at verse 33 with me. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Jesus has left Nazareth. He's made his way down geographically to Capernaum, a small town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he's preaching with great authority. And all of a sudden, he's interrupted. Right? We can picture a, a Will Smith, Chris Rock Oscars moment. You remember that, right? It was the slap heard around the world. And that's what's happening on the floor of the synagogue in this moment. A massive interruption in Jesus' teaching. But this is fascinating. There's a few questions we should ask here. Right? Why was a demon-possessed man in the synagogue? That's interesting. How long had this demon-possessed man been attending the synagogue? How many sermons had he heard from rabbis that never angered him like it angered him that morning? In fact, what was it about that morning with that rabbi and that message that sent this demon off? Luke's language communicates that the demon shrieked and he screamed at the top of his lungs. So what we see is it wasn't just the worshipers in the synagogue that recognized the authority of Jesus that morning. The demon did too. And he shrieks, asking what Jesus had to do with them. And then he also identifies Jesus. He calls him by name, Jesus of Nazareth. And he also says something true about him. He declares who he is, the Holy One of Israel. And so this demon, in the midst of Jesus' authority, recognizes him for who he is, what he's come to do, and the demon confesses true things about Jesus. But we need to take notice of this here especially those of you who have grown up in the church. Maybe there's some young people who've grown up in the church here this morning that that need to hear this. You probably know a lot about Jesus. But there's a difference between a confession of truth and a profession of faith. Many people who've grown up in the church and been around Christianity know a lot about Jesus. And they can say all sorts of true things about Jesus. But notice here, even the demon does that. 
How is the knowledge of Jesus, the true things that you know about Him, leading you to dependence and faith in Him? How are you moving from a confession of truth to a profession of faith? That's the question I would pose to you this morning if you've been around this Christianity thing for some time, but you haven't experienced the the transformation and and life-altering joy and peace of King Jesus. How is the Spirit moving you from a confession of truth to a possession of faith? And so we see the demons say true things about Jesus, but then the King speaks, and He has zero appreciation for the true things the demon says. It says that Jesus rebukes the demon, tells him to be silent and come out of the man. And what happens next? In His authority, Jesus speaking is His doing. His message is His method. The authority of His Word brings about the obedience of the demon. That's fascinating. King Jesus, in a moment, with a word, demonstrates that He has authority even over the world of evil forces. His authority authenticates He is who He says He is. And He's come to do what He's promised to do. What the crowd in the synagogue saw that morning was a microcosm of what Jesus came to do for all of eternity. Right Through this exorcism, Jesus was showing that He came to destroy the works of the devil. And though we don't really see demon exorcism in the New Testament after the Gospels, we see demon possession throughout the Gospels. Because the evil, the, the devil and his demonic forces were, were waging war with God while he was on earth. And yet, we see Jesus regularly liberating those under the forces of evil and darkness because his mission and his ministry was to disarm and defeat the devil. Jesus was coming to reverse the curse of the fall to undo the effects of sin. And for that to happen, he had to wage war on the devil. And we get a glimpse of that here. But ultimately, this war is going to culminate on the cross and three days later when he'd rise from the dead where Jesus' perfect and ultimate authority will be on full display. The king who has all authority will demonstrate that authority in the most glorious, most powerful, most upside-down way giving His perfect life for His people on the cross. Where the devil sought to sow sin and rebellion in the hearts of all people, Jesus stands as the substitute, taking that sin to the cross for all who would trust in Him as their Savior. So what we see happening here, and what those in the synagogue saw happening that morning, was a preview of what was to come. This demon exorcism under the authority of Jesus is seemingly a reality far beyond what was happening that day in the worship service. Luke wants us to see that Jesus' power and His authority and His victory over the devil and His dominion here in this text is a foretaste of what's to come. There will come a day when King Jesus stands in forever and final victory over the devil, and this is a foreshadow of what that will be like. That means we should read this text this morning and long with anticipation for the day that this will be a full reality. A day when the devil and his schemes have no effect on God's people. And it says this crowd stood amazed. 
They couldn't contain themselves. It says that they said to themselves, they were all amazed and said to one another, verse 36, what is this word? They recognized Jesus had authority and power over the unclean spirit through His Word. In King Jesus' authority, His speaking is His doing. His message is His method. And it says words spread quick. Twitter feeds were blowing up. Instagram reels of the exorcism were going viral. Hashtag, this king is legit. But his day wasn't over yet. Look at verse 38 and 39. And he arose, left the synagogue, and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. So after the worship service in the synagogue, it would have been around noon, they head to Simon Peter's house for a church, post-church Sabbath meal. And I'm sure Peter's wife, being a good Baptist, had put a meal in the crock pot, hoping they'd have a family to entertain after service. But on the way, they get word that Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Here's what I love about what we see of Jesus' authority. He doesn't just use His authority cosmically to defeat the devil. His compassion is God moves Him to use authority for the good of mother-in-laws too. Jesus loves moms. He loves dads and sons and daughters, but, but we get to see the heart of Jesus here in this moment. And so He gets to the house and He goes into the bedroom. And interestingly, what happens there is quite similar to what happens in the synagogue. He doesn't recite any wacky incantations. He doesn't do any magic sleight of hand. He simply speaks. He opens his mouth. He rebukes the fever. And it obeys. Now the similarity between the two instances, between the synagogue and the bedside, should not cause us to think that Luke is trying to communicate that the fever is the result of a demon. Jesus is demonstrating by the power of His Word that He not only has authority over the kingdom of darkness, but He also has authority over the kingdom of nature and illness. Again, He's reversing the curse of the fall. He's undoing the effects of sin broadly though, not specifically. Peter's mother-in-law did not have a fever because she sinned. But she did have a fever because under the curse of sin, this world and our bodies are broken. Under the curse of the fall, we get sick and we get hurt, and it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus is coming to undo the effects of this broken, sin-stained world. His authority is authenticating that He has come to reverse the curse of sin. And so what we learn about Jesus' authority in the synagogue and at the bedside is that this compassion is for anyone. Jesus' authority is not just cosmic, it's deeply personal too. And that word is spread. You can imagine how after the church service, people begin talking and it, it causes quite the stir. Look at verse 40 and 41. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him. And He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. This was a marathon day for Jesus. It had begun before sunup. He taught and preached in the synagogue. He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a demon. He was hoping for the post-church nap. But when he got home, he needed to rebuke a fever. And now just when he thought he might have some time to relax, people start showing up at Peter's house. 
No one came over in the afternoon because it was the Sabbath. To walk to Peter's house to try and see Jesus would have constituted work. So they had to wait till the sun started to set, marking the end of the Sabbath and allowing them to find Him. And find Him they did. Mark in his account adds the detail that the whole city gathered at the door of Peter's house. The entire town of Capernaum had heard about what happened that morning. Everyone came to get a glimpse of this Jesus, and anyone who was sick came and was healed. And notice, Luke says he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I imagine Jesus could have stretched out his hand over the whole group and said, you're healed. And yet, it says he laid his hands on every single individual. Jesus would not turn any away. Again, his authority operated with his compassion. And he healed, and he healed, and he healed until everyone left healthy and whole. Can you imagine this setting? Scholars believe Capernaum had a population of around 1,500 at this time. 1,500 people gathered around Peter's house. His freshly healed mother-in-law serving those who were there. The disciples, I imagine, watching everything that Jesus was doing, hanging on His every word. And one by one, the lame would show up and they'd walk out under their own power. The blind who'd never seen a color in their life go home seeing. The leprous, clean, invited into community. His authority authenticating He is the one Isaiah 61 foretold. And then it wasn't just the sick either. Demon-possessed people were coming. Every one of them too was delivered and the demons were shut up. It says Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew He was the Christ. They knew true things about Him, but they didn't allow those true things to change their heart and mind. Their knowledge of Christ did not lead to repentance or faith, and so Jesus would not give them the authority to speak on His behalf. One commentator said Jesus was not going to allow creatures of hell to speak about heavenly things. Jesus was the one who had authority to speak about the kingdom of God. And in His time, He would extend that authority to others. But now was, that, was not that time, and these were not to be the spokesmen. And it's this authority to proclaim the kingdom that leads us to our third and final point. The authority of Jesus' mission. Look with me at verse 42 through 44. And when it was day, he departed, went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus is with people all night. The whole town has come out to him. He's healed everyone. Any sickness or disease, anyone afflicted by demons, Jesus has met with them all. His authority over demonic and natural forces has been on display the entire night and day in Capernaum. And as the sun begins to rise, He sneaks off to a desolate place. He's finally able to escape the craziness of the day. He gets a bit of a retreat by Himself, but but what's interesting is that word desolate place. See, that, that word is actually the same exact word Luke used earlier when the Spirit led Jesus out to the wilderness. So why, after a marathon day of ministry, would Jesus ever go back out to the wilderness 
to this desolate place. Friends, it's for the very same reason the Spirit led him there during the temptation episode. For Jesus, the wilderness is a place of worship. It was a place of silence and solitude where He could be alone with the Father, full of the Spirit, experiencing the intimate communion they had together. The wilderness is where Jesus would get His strength. It's where He would be refreshed and rejuvenated. It's where He would prepare for His ministry. And I think there's something here for us this morning. See, this need for wilderness, this need to escape to the desolate place, isn't coming from a place of Jesus' divinity. This need to be in the wilderness is actually coming because of His humanity, because of His likeness to us. So what Jesus is doing is He's modeling for us in this moment our need for regular, desolate place, wilderness sessions. Jesus knows the heart of humanity and the soul that we have better than anyone. And to live a spiritually healthy life, to live a life of abundance in service to God, there needs to be times of wilderness refreshment. There needs to be times where we turn everything off, where we go to a desolate place, where we might even sit in silence. It's hard to imagine in this day. And we commune with our God. And think about how much more important this is in our noisy, distracting world today than it would have been in Jesus. I've read one theologian who's done a lot of writing on this topic, and he says the greatest danger to God's people in this generation is distraction. He says, with all our technology, media, and connectedness, he believes humanity is distracting itself to death. It's quite the claim. But we can push back against that. We can push back against the noise and the distraction by allowing the Spirit to lead us into the wilderness more often. To follow the way of Jesus into the desolate place. To have times of silence and solitude communing with our Father full of the Spirit experiencing the intimate communion that we have as adopted sons and daughters. And so Jesus is in that desolate place well, all of a sudden, they find Him. Imagine word has continued to spread. People have shared what their experiences was. They don't want Him to, to leave. Life in Capernaum had never been better. They got a taste of heaven that day, and they did not want Him to go away. But Jesus has other plans, doesn't He? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So far, Jesus' authority had been on display through His message and His methods, but now we see His authority through His mission. He says He was sent for one purpose. What was it? To proclaim the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God. Isn't that interesting? The crowds want Him to stay because of what they just experienced the night before. Because of what they saw, not what they heard. The lame walked. The blind could see. The demon-possessed were liberated. But Jesus says the real reason He was sent from heaven was to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Does Jesus care about the physical healing of His people? He absolutely does. Jesus physically exercised a demon from that man in a synagogue. 
He physically healed Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. And the reality is, Jesus cares deeply about the physical realm. He created us as embodied humans. We live in a physical material world that Jesus created and he, he cares about it and He stands in authority over it. And so He can rebuke demons and fevers and they obey. But what we see through the authority of Jesus' mission is that He ultimately came to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that means that He cares even more about the spiritual health of His people. Throughout Jesus' ministry, as you're all going to see as you continue through Luke, He continues to physically heal people. But He's more concerned with the heart and spiritual health of those He comes in contact with. The good news of the kingdom of God is that God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting spiritual life. Jesus came to preach that in our sin we're dead to the things of God. That in our fallen state, we do not desire God. We do not pursue God. We're unable to muster up any merit of our own that would please Him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. From death to life. That means every one of us that is in Christ is as much of a walking miracle as any one of those that were in Capernaum that day. And you saw this miracle firsthand last week in your baptisms. From death to life, walking miracles. In Christ, we've been crucified with Him. And we've also been raised with Him to new life. This is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus was sent to proclaim. His mission is to heal and to disarm the devil and raise dead people to life. But most often, that happens spiritually. We need the healing touch of Jesus. But the reality is we need it on our sinful, broken hearts more than we need it on our sinful, broken bodies. Does Jesus still heal people physically today though? I believe He does. And I know your pastors believe He does too. I believe according to His grace and mercy, Jesus allows doctors and the modern marvels of medicine to bring about healing to His people. But I also believe that according to His divine will, He heals people supernaturally at times. And so we should pray that God would heal those we love and that He would restore them physically if it's His will. But most importantly, we should trust Him knowing that His ultimate mission is to preach the good news of the kingdom which tells us His greatest concern is for Him to heal us spiritually. But friends, we, we also have this hope for when our bodies do get sick or broken, when that physical healing doesn't come. There's coming a day when we will experience the kingdom of God in its fullness. And we will experience the physical healing that we all pray for and desire when the Bible says that He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our true and greatest hope. Even more than experiencing physical healing in this temporary world, we know that we will live in perfect health, with perfect bodies, with a perfect King for all of eternity. His mission is to preach the good news of the Kingdom of God so that people may repent of their sin 
experience Him and His kingdom, and live with Him forevermore. What football coach would ever start an NFL season by saying, this is a football? Only one who has the authority to back up such a simple approach like Vince Lombardi. And who in the world could possibly claim that they've come to forgive people of their sin, to set the captives free, to give sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Only one who has authority over all things. Jesus' authority authenticates who He is. Let me pray. Father, we, we rejoice this morning seeing the, the authority of King Jesus on display. Knowing that He hasn't changed and He still rules and reigns in all authority today. And He speaks to us with authority. And He works in our lives with authority. And He's ruling and reigning over the universe, holding all things together with His authority. And so I pray, God, that we would have confidence as His followers that He is who He says He is. That it would cause us to to worship Him. To submit to Him. To follow Him. And to rejoice living in a, a watching world that wonders where our joy and hope and peace comes from. May we live in ways that proclaim our knee is bent to a King who has all authority and who is good and gracious and merciful. We love You and we praise You. We thank You for Your Word. It's in King Jesus' name we pray. Amen.